more people will be coming in. But you have the, the, the uh, I don't know, if, anyway, first thing in the morning, <laughs> uh, depends on how quickly people can get, get through their breakfast, and especially their breakfast conversations <laughs> before they get to the first class of the day. Um, my name is Tim Willis, for what it matters. I, I teach here at, at Pepperdine. Uh, and for some reason, uh, Mike Cope asked me to introduce this morning's speaker. I think it's because uh, he doesn't come from around here. <laughs> and so um, uh, our speaker is Roger Nam, Professor Roger Nam from uh, Portland Seminary, which is part of George Fox University up in, in Oregon. He was trained uh, at uh, UCLA primarily. Uh, he and I have similar interests. We haven't corresponded directly yet, but I, I know I've been using some of his work recently. Uh, he, he is focused, he's in Old Testament studies, as, as am I. Uh, I deal with what we call in the field the Deuteronomistic history, which is Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. And Dr. Nam focuses his attention on the rest of the history, Chronicles, Ezra and Nehemiah, which we're going to get to hear about today. But we also have common interest in, in being interested in things like uh, not just what does the text say, but what does it kind of point to what, in, in terms of like you deal with uh, economy, wealth, poverty, those things, which are certainly there, but you've got to really get into studying the, the, the broader culture to see what is implied in those things and really then get more deeply into the real-life relevant ideas of what is the message that these prophets and priests and other people were, were uh, proclaiming uh, at the time there, so th then we can have a better understanding of what it might be saying to us. So I'm really, really interested in, in hearing what uh, Dr. Nam has to say today about Chronicles, yeah, Ezra and Nehemiah Chronicles, Time of the Exile, just some, some fascinating stuff. How do we deal with uh, the biblical message in the real world. So, looking forward to this. I'm, I'm going to read to you a text that I just got from my wife to show you where I am at this moment. Uh, I, I didn't hear from her since last night. This morning at 8.09 a.m., I parked the car. I'm trying to find this building, asking people, where, where is this building? At 8.09 a.m., I get this text. <clears throat> I'm going to read the entirety of the text. There's a letter from the circuit court for you. That's it. <laughs> I just wrote back, uh, could you open it, please? I'm lecturing pretty soon, and I haven't heard back. I'm just going to turn and flip this over. <laughs> if an agent comes for me, I'm sorry. <laughs> Dr. Willis can fill in the rest of my, my presentation. <laughs> uh, yeah, my name is Roger Nam. Thank you for the introduction. I spent 12 years in LA. Uh, I did my undergrad and PhD at UCLA. I was originally from San Francisco. And um, how did I end up at Portland Seminary? A little bit, which would make some sense into who I am. Uh, after graduation from college, I decided to become a pastor. And I wanted to become a pastor. I also decided, I, I was born in San Francisco, I wanted to learn the Korean language. And so I'd taken two years at UCLA. I didn't feel I was fluent enough, so I moved to Korea as a 21-year-old to learn the Korean language. And I taught a little bit of English, and I became a pastor at that church up top, as Chunyun Presbyterian Church. Uh, so Koreans like big churches, right? It's a very urban center. This church had about 30,000 people go on Sundays. 
uh, including 10,000 children. So about 20,000 adults, 10,000 children. And 50-something pastors. I was the youngest pastor on their pastoral staff. I did seminary in Korea. And so uh, as a second-generation Korean, I did seminary in the Korean language, which was terrible. My <laughs> first semester GPA was like a 1.9 because my language was so poor. And I just uh, have so much compassion towards my international students now because it's so hard to study in your second language. I worked at this church for three years. And I finished my MDiv at 26, which is really young in Korea because I was exempt from military service. In the middle of my um, time in Korea, we, we actually had, uh, I had immigration, Korean immigration come to my workplace to um, tell me it's time for my mandatory military service. And uh, so they weren't arresting me, but they're telling me to report to the immigration office. So I went to the immigration office the next day with my boss. And I uh, went through a process to officially get rid of my Korean citizenship. Even though I was born in the States, my dad registered me as a citizen because I was a male over 20. It was time for my two and a half years mandatory military service. So I remember sitting in the immigration office and the officers asking me, uh, you have two choices. You could either quit your citizenship of Korea or you can serve for two and a half years in the military. And in my mind, I'm thinking, are you joking? I don't see irony in your voice because it's a pretty easy decision for me. Uh, and so I went ahead and quit and finished my degree, graduated. And at 26, if you can relate, I was just burnt from ministry. I was so tired of um, all the things that happens. Our senior pastor had turned over during the time. It's a Presbyterian church. I'm Presbyterian, so uh, political issues with elders. It's also a big church. Not only was it a big church at the time, the president was an elder at the church. I'm not saying a president of the denomination. The president of the nation was an elder at the church. And so the senior pastor would go every Sunday to the Korean equivalent of the White House, it's called the Blue Roof, and lead services for the president and his staff. Uh, one of the few Korean ex-presidents not to be jailed after the presidency, so I guess, I guess we're proud of that. Uh, <laughs> it was a really incredible church, but I was just so tired, um, which is funny because I was in my 20s. I was a single male, single uh, child, you know, no children. Uh, I was just so exhausted. And so um, I came back to the States in 1997, and uh, I just wanted to take a break from ministry. And so I had an econ degree, and so I got a job. If you remember the 1990s, I got a job in the Silicon Valley in 1997 at a place called Maxim Integrated Products. This is the headquarters today. This is a semiconductor company. I worked as a financial analyst for four years. And uh, if you are old enough to remember the 1990s in the Silicon Valley, this company, when I started in 1997, our annual revenue was about $420 million, you know, mid-sized company making analog semiconductors. So your cell phone has them right now, your computer, cars. Uh, by the time four years had passed, the revenue had gone from $420 million to $2.2 billion. So this, and this was kind of typical of the time of the 1990s for a hardware company. It just exploded. And we were doing so well as a company. And uh, in the year 2000, living in Sunnyvale, California, uh, that's where the company was at the time, now in San Jose, I was also um, working pretty hard, doing pretty well, but it wasn't fun. I felt this wasn't the right place for me. And also happening at this time, my stepfather was, was pretty sick. He became 
uh, sick with stomach cancer and um, we had just recently gotten married and we're doing a lot of care for my stepfather and one night when we did not uh, have to make some medicine run or some pharmacy run uh, my wife and I newly married we went out for coffee and as people in service of the church um, be careful because you never know when you'll have a cup of coffee that will forever change your life. This is my wife. We've been married for months. And uh, she knew that I was doing well professionally, but that I wasn't happy. And so she asked me, if you can do anything that you wanted, what would you do? And I'd gone to seminary. I'd been in finance for almost four years. And I said, you know what? If, um, if I could do anything I wanted, I'd probably become an Old Testament professor. I think I, I enjoyed those classes. <laughs> I like Hebrew. I thought it would be pretty fun. I think I'd be pretty good at that. And she looked at me and said, well, why don't you? And then I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> and I quit my job. And we moved here. And I started studying German. And um, after seven short years of graduate school, I ended up with my first job. And uh, that was just one evening where I came in thinking something came out something terrible and I think God's really gentle because I didn't I had this really nice job and back in the early 2000 the the internet was going down but hardware looked solid and I was in hardware and um, the company looked fantastic but it took a uh, a difficult performance review I've been spending a lot of time my first three years I uh, had great reviews, great raises, and then I, I had a raise of 3%, and before that it had been between 15 to 20%. And that next day I quit. And I think God's really gentle pushing me. Now that I'm a, a professor, I realize that 3% is pretty good. You know, that's, a, that's a great raise if you're a professor in the ministry. But um, I, I stopped, and uh, I ended up becoming a Old Testament scholar from UCLA, specializing in language and economy. I wrote my first book on First and Second Kings, and then uh, I went on sabbatical. My second book is on Ezra and Nehemiah. I just turned in a manuscript a week ago, mm. the Theology of the Books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And so I've been walking with this text for um, quite a few years. I have another book that's due in 2023. The sad news is I signed this contract two years ago, and I haven't written a word yet, and so I'm down to four years. But I'm doing a commentary on Ezra and Nehemiah uh, for something called the Old Testament Library. And um, what I want to present to you is a question. I have three questions I want to pose to you today. The first one is, why is preaching on Ezra and Nehemiah so rare? I want to give you like one minute to think about it on yourself. Why is it so rare to hear a sermon on Ezra and Nehemiah? And I, I combine those together because most scholars actually think they're one text, uh, with very few exceptions. In early interpretation, they were considered one text both in Christian and Jewish literature. Uh, so the question to think for yourself, why is preaching on Ezra and Nehemiah so rare? And I'm going to give you now exactly 60 seconds to go to the person next to you and explain why you think preaching on this is so rare. 60 seconds begins now. <laughs>
That's true. <laughs> I also think another reason, because I tried to preach from it. Um, it's just a, it's a historical right? It deals with them coming back from Persia conquered Babylon and then in Persia the authorized basically them to start coming back. It was under Darius. Darius yeah, I think Cyrus sounds right. Or I think Cyrus Yeah, and I guess people have a hard time trying to figure out how that can relate to the individual. Yeah. 20 seconds. Um, yeah, that's true. All about the men going Yeah. But I think what people don't realize that everything that happens to a nation happens to an all right, so if you're part of a congregation that continually goes through Ezra Nehemiah, my apologies for you. Use your, you could use your imagination. I know that is not the common case. So just let me hear a few. Why, why is preaching on Ezra Nehemiah so rare? Yeah. Uh, the one thing I was just talking about with him is just the fact that it's a historical book and trying to preach from something that is history, it's, it's hard. And especially with the old, it being so far back in <laughs> history. So, because I've tried preaching from it, and it's been a difficult book for me to preach from. And so, um, haven't spent a lot of time. I've studied it to a degree, but as far as preaching it, I haven't really done a whole lot of that. But, and now you're here. So and now I'm here. That's why I wanted to come to this class. <laughs> Great. And yes. Also, also because nobody can find me. Nobody can find it, yeah. It's in there somewhere, like somewhere near the maps, maybe. Okay. Well, because it's in the Old Testament, we live by the New Testament. Okay, yeah. Said with a smile of irony. Okay. Also, um, there is a historical as well as theological groundwork of exile and return that you need to lay in order to teach these texts adequately. Yeah. And, you know, take time to prepare and really give that to your congregation is, um, is tricky. Right, historical groundwork, great, yeah. yeah. Temple building and wall building, I guess not so exciting. I think it's an awesome set of books, but yeah. you, know, you just can't find something in there. Tons of stuff. Temple building and wall building, yeah, hard to connect that. All right, any other ideas? I would think that politically the reconstruction of Jerusalem as a seat of power is something that Americans struggle for, maybe not so much currently, but it's definitely the 50s and 60s. Right. So there's there's a lot of political ties to Jerusalem as a city. Yeah, power. Great. That's what I'll talk about tomorrow. Actually, power. This text. And so, it's usually a really bad idea to start as a king scholar to go to Ezra and Nehemiah. It's, it's often a terrible idea because the literature is quite different. And so, uh, I um, I went on sabbatical in 2014, and I've been I wrote my first book, I've been teaching for six years, and I wanted to start a new project. And so I wrote a sabbatical proposal. I was going to write a book called The Economics of Diaspora. And so my first book is on the economy of ancient Israel. Pre-exilic, I wanted to do one of, of diaspora. And I arrived in Korea, and something happened. So first of all, I arrived in 2014. I was a visiting professor 
at a Jesuit school in Seoul um, called Sukong University. Uh, interesting thing, they had a conference and Mark Hamilton showed up and I met him for the first time and his wife. Uh, 2014 um, was also 47 years after my mom and dad immigrated to the States. So my mom and dad came in 1967. Uh, the U.S. lifted quotas on Asian immigration in 1965, and after that, just a whole <coughs> flood of East Asians came through. My aunt was the first, and she arrived, um, she married a GI from the Korean War, and her family sponsored my father and all his siblings to come one by one to the States. So my mom and dad came in 1967. And if you do the math, 1967 to 2014 is 47 years. And so if you look at your biblical history, if you think about the deportations of the destruction of Jerusalem happening in 586 BC, and Cyrus releases the people to go up at 539, that's actually a 47 year difference. And so I understand the, the dangers of comparison and anachronism, but it was really profound to go back to Korea, where I'm from, even though I was born in the States, with my third generation children, to Korea and navigate who we were as Koreans. And one story really struck out. And so we moved back to Seoul. We got this apartment. If you've never been to Seoul, Korea, just imagine New York, but more crowded, like New York City, but more crowded. And so our apartment complex, our complex had about 20,000 people, high rises. And in these complexes to give kids places to play, they have these little soccer fields. Uh, they're enclosed with foam, with fences, so that you can play soccer in a very small field. And my six-year-old, my second son, was out there playing with other neighborhood kids. And summers in Korea are massively humid and hot. He comes back to the apartment. He's dripping in sweat. He's playing with these other neighborhood Korean boys. And he asks, as a six-year-old, he has a state of consciousness that even though he's Korean, my wife is Korean, I'm Korean, he looks Korean, he speaks Korean, but he knew there was something different. And so he comes back and he asks me, Dad, am I Korean or am I American? Mm. So as a six-year-old, being third generation, coming back to a country of origin, there was something about his identity that he realized was different from everybody else to the point where he can ask, am I Korean or am I American? He's looking for guidance on that question. If you have challenges preaching from Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, I think this is really true. I had a conversation with my doctoral advisor yesterday. I, I dropped by UCLA to have lunch with him, and he knows I'm doing this work. And he just, he literally said to me, I hate Ezra and Nehemiah. <laughs> I was like, I'm writing two books on this. Tell me more why you hate Ezra and Nehemiah. And he says that every time that it's preached, it's because some pastor or some elder wants to build a building. They, they want to collect some money. They want to make some money, so they want to preach on Ezra and Nehemiah. Nehemiah especially, build the walls, it's going to be great. And I, and I went back to him and said, you don't hate Ezra and Nehemiah, you hate the interpretation of Ezra and Nehemiah. And so he, he agreed and acquiesced to that, the interpretation. If you think of Ezra and Nehemiah, you might think of building. You also, another common trope is leadership. And I'm here to tell you that as I look at Ezra and Nehemiah, the primary you know, one of the primary themes I see is identity. Mm -hmm. My kid, my six-year-old, am I Korean, am I American? What is identity, who are we? I should mention it's kind of a loaded term. By identity, I mean who you are, defined as yourself, and also by others. 
and something that's not immutable. It's something that's shaped by your experiences, by your context. Uh, that you have a core, but it also has to be in dialogue with your experiences in the ways that you grow and change. So in this time, if you want to preach on Ezra and Nehemiah, I think this five minute video will be the key for you. And we will try to unlock this. So the question of what is a repatriate, what is someone that goes back to a fatherland, a land of origin, and I think this is a big part of the identity. So I invite you to watch this brief video. 23 years old, I'm Indian, and this is the first time I'm ever gonna go to India. And I'm doing it to bring my grandfather's ashes show you some pictures or you want to play the thing narrate show you some pictures okay so you heard this is Michelle's from LA she's from here she's born here she works for BuzzFeed uh, at least she used to and she um, her father left 37 years ago and hasn't been back and so her grandfather passed away and he moved to the States they're going back to India uh, for a proper burial what happens later is she arrives she's super excited and uh, he's telling stories, they're going back and they're having their first meal in India. And uh, I wanna show you some screenshots. They show you clarified butter to make the savoriness of the dal. And Michelle is having her first Indian meal in India. And keep in mind her mom and dad are both of Indian descent. So she's had Indian food all her life and here in Southern California, it is a tremendously amazing place of ethnic food, but this is her first meal in India. Her uncle saying, this is amazing. The clarified butter, her first bite, look at her face. And you could probably read the, the word, so good. And look at that statistic, many ESL programs. So why was a student teacher a way to make money when I was an undergrad? And I do remember a teacher is telling immigrant children, we want them to learn English, so try not to speak Mandarin or Spanish, whatever language it was. Now we know that children have these incredible capacities to learn both equally well. Their, their English test scores are actually equivalent. Um, this does not hinder your language acquisition. So as a result, uh, a lot of second generation of this era did not speak their native language that well, and we're encouraged not to. And so, um, obviously it's a really long journey. He's explaining that he came when he was 10, and after about a year, his dreams start, started changing into English language. And he has a perfect English accent, and that's true 10, 11, 12 is about the age when you immigrate where you uh, are able to have a clean English accent. They're going back to the house where he actually grew up. And he's there for the first time. 
and just looking. And Michelle's interviewing her father. He's explaining like where he used to sit with his grandmother, where they used to pick up the milk, where the, the older kids would play cricket and some of the younger kids would play in the smaller field. And uh, I'll show you, I'll freeze at this one place. Michelle asks, Dad, tell me just how life is different for you here in America, in America compared to here in India. And he just pauses for a long time right now and he says, I just can't compare the two experiences. They're just so different. There, there's no comparison. He's telling stories about childhood, uh, the buildings there. There's a time where he jumped into a bush that ended up being filled with bees. Uh, where were you at 10 years old? What if you went back? Even those experiences would be so profound. And what if it was another country? Those are some of the cricket grounds. So I want to ask of you, this is a 37-year difference. Michelle is single. The question, the question number two I want to, to give to you to kind of prompt your ideas on uh, repatriate, what it means to go back, is what are some of the challenges that Michelle would face if she were to never return to the US? Because this is the repatriate experience. This is a return journey. So it's actually pretty awesome just to visit for a week or two or three or four, but to go and to never come back, I want you to think for a few seconds, what would be some of the challenges Michelle were faced if she and her family were to stay there forever and to never return? Is that an open question? I just wanted to think through for about 15 more seconds. Okay, again, in your pairs, I'll give you 60 seconds to kind of answer with each other. What are some of the challenges that she would face? Seconds. <laughs> yeah, so uh, I don't know why grandmother came to the 
when she was 14, she got on the bus all by herself. Very brave. And my nephew, who went to college here, played baseball. If he went back to Norway, to Oslo, and knocked on the door where his brother came from, he wrote him letters, said, I'm coming, I'll be here on this day at this time. They were not home. <laughs> All right, so I want to solicit some, uh, harvest some of this conversation. She is back, born in the States, back to her repatriated country of origin. What are some of the challenges she's going to face? I was thinking she'd have to acclimate to a whole new culture that she didn't grow up in. Yeah, whole new culture. Yeah. And completely rethink her career choices. Yeah, she's not going to look for BuzzFeed, probably, <laughs> perhaps. And uh, you had a comment? I was just thinking of, you know, that she wouldn't truly feel accepted by the natives there, kind of like your son, mm -hmm. that, that limbo, am I really Indian, am I really American, mm -hmm. and not really feeling accepted by the rest of the people that very good, yeah, very good. Yeah. Actually, we had three kids in that kind of situation, oh. uh, living as, in Japan for 17 years, our kids growing up there, and then we moved back to America uh, just a few years ago. So our kids uh, were finding themselves, and I guess many of us have heard the term TCKs, uh -huh. uh, third culture kids, uh -huh. which is why our kids are. So uh, like she mentioned, our kids were finding who they really are because they're not really completely Japanese, which my wife is, and they're not really completely American, so they don't fit into any particular slot. So for a long time, they struggled with finding self-confidence in the American culture, which is extremely challenging when you come from mm -hmm. a culture that's used to uh, group identity. <laughs> for us, that's what our kids struggle with, is finding that cultural place where they can assimilate all the mm -hmm. things that they so let's oh, like recast what you all just said. Economic challenges. Am I going to be accepted by the locals? What is my culture? Does that remind you of Ezra and Nehemiah? Remember the Samaritans? Remember Nehemiah 5, the taxes and the, ha the fact they had to slip, sell children to bondage? Remember how much they hated? The, they called them actually the adversaries in the text. This is all what I think is a dominant theme in Ezra and Nehemiah. This is a picture of Korea in 1967. This is a picture of Korea in 2014. Mm. This is what my mom and dad left. And then they come back. To, of course, we went back throughout time. But my first trip to Korea was in the 1970s. Korea was still a really poor country with GDP equivalent to sub-Saharan African countries in the 1970s. I was in my grandmother's house in Seoul as a 70-year-old, and they did not have running water. And so it, it was, that's how different it changed so rapidly. And of course there was buildings and shops and foreigners, but now it's the 11th largest GDP in the world. It is just an incredibly modern city. Um, it is so innovative and so, but how hard is it to come back? And for here, I think, yeah. I'm sorry, I just have a question. Sure. Would there also be language barriers? I mean, because languages tend to mm -hmm. change sometimes. Sure. Would there also be a challenge? Like, that is also a challenge, uh, yes. Language became more American. Language is a, um, it, it's, grammar's descriptive, not prescriptive, and language constantly changes. You actually, you, know, you see that in the Bible. You know, the Bible, in your translation, it all feels even in the Old Testament, where in fact it covers all sorts of different levels of language. So you can imagine 
Um, if, I, if we were ever to do a translation together, we would have like King James English and modern and mix that up together and that would reflect kind of the diachronic shifts in language. My mom's still fluent, but she speaks differently and she thinks her Korean is perfect. Well, when I talk to her brother, it's like, oh, your mom speaks weird, <laughs> like is what they say. And so uh, there's an awareness of that as well, which we see in Ezra Nehemiah, right? So just imagine the change between those two things. And what I'm trying to argue in my book is that it is the repatriation, the return, that changes everything in the way you interpret this text. So I'm going to show these two verses uh, for both today and tomorrow morning. And you don't have to worry about the, the bold part. The Lord stirred up the spirit of King Cyrus of Persia. This frames Ezra Nehemiah in that this should be really weird to you because the Lord often does not stir up the spirit of a foreign king, right? It's usually a Davidic king, but you hardly get mention of David. Uh, instead, God is going to work through a Persian king, Cyrus. The other thing, and any of those among you who are those people, may their God be with them, you are now permitted to go up to Jerusalem and Judah and rebuild the house of the Lord. And so you're in the Persian Empire, you're permitted by Cyrus to go back to Jerusalem, to go up there, and so you should know that Jerusalem is high. You know, it actually snows there, you know, one or two times a year. It is a journey when you go up, when you walk up, kind of a pilgrimage. And so he is giving royal sponsorship and permission to go back to Jerusalem, rebuild the temple of the Lord. And I believe this frames the entire book of Ezra Nehemiah. Uh, it's probably good for you to know that you know, biblical Hebrew, it doesn't have tenses in the way that you think of English past tense. Um, it really does, it's more an aspectual system. And so we think of language of perfected and non-perfected action, action that's completed and non-completed. And what that means is a lot of narratives revolve around uh, what we would call historical anchors. And so linguistically, is this completed or not completed in line with the historical anchors? And I think this has some clue in how we interpret. <laughs> and that's, um, that's broad. Certain later Hebrew actually has tenses, but most standard biblical Hebrew doesn't have tense in the way that we think. So a lot of it is a refrain, and I think the repatriation, the return, the experience of going from this, having this frozen in memory and story, and coming to this is part of how we want to interpret Ezra Nehemiah. This frames everything. I argue that this repatriation is a totalizing effect on the text. You cannot interpret Ezra Nehemiah. You cannot preach from Ezra Nehemiah without understanding a return over 47 years. And what does that mean to form identity for this type of return? Uh, I want to talk about a few ways that identity is formed. And so I mentioned that identity is something not just what you proclaim, but what others think of you. Uh, Pepperdine's identity is not just through the administration of Pepperdine University, but how it is perceived. And one example is, uh, well, in recent years, Pepperdine has actually shot up in national college rankings. Um, you know, back in the 80s, the first time I heard of Pepperdine was, uh, I, you know, I, I played water polo as a high school kid. And so there's a guy named Terry Schroeder who is the bust of the 1984 um, statue of an Olympian. And they had a great water polo team. That's the first time I heard about it. But now it's really on the National Register. Uh, and that's something outside of the direct control of, and so your church, the identity is what you want it to be, but also what others perceive it to be as well. An identity is changing. 
So how do you form identity? I'm gonna present you know, a few areas of Ezra Nehemiah that help you understand their self-proclaimed identity. Go back to my six-year-old kid. Who is he? That was a really dominant question for their attorneys. One way you form identity is through your story. I started this last night. This was historical memory, and then I changed it to social memory, and I woke up this morning after my shower, I just changed it to story, because it's a lot cleaner. What is your story? And they revolved their identity about the story of exile. And so if you look at Nehemiah 9, Nehemiah 9 is uh, one of the two longest prayers in the Bible outside of the Psalms. And what's great about Nehemiah 9, it goes to this long story of what God did. It starts with the Exodus. Oh, it actually goes with the patriarchs, the Exodus. And it talks about the exile. They were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law, your Torah, behind their backs and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you gave them into the hands of their enemies. You gave them to the Babylonians. And so they all share this story together. But what's interesting, you share it in different ways. If you look at Ezra 3, they, they start to worship together. And you'll remember, most of the people are like super happy. But the elders who remember the first temple are crying, actually. So the same story is perceived in different ways, and even polar opposite ways. One very tangible example. I asked my mom to talk about 1960s Korea. And she gives this bucolic, beautiful image of her siblings getting along, a great, I know 1960s Korea was politically oppressive, it was poor, there was so much rampant poverty, and I think her story is different because I think that reflects on her experience in America. My family name is Nam. That is like the worst Asian name to have to immigrate to the States in the 60s and 70s. It was a terrible name to have. And so my cousins tell me, my older cousins tell me stories. My dad, my dad was a short man. He was about 5'6", five, 5'7". Five, and they would talk about my dad, who's now passed, and say, like, we're so proud of your dad. We'd see him rolling on the ground with white guys fighting with him. I'm like, what? Why is that a good thing? Uh, but I imagine... Um, and even the Bay Area in the 1960s and 70s was not nearly as Asian as it is now. It was a different place. I remember from my elementary school. And uh, I, I'm sure my mom and dad experienced a lot of racial hardship. So that story fixed and changed. Uh, with Ezra and Nehemiah, they share some story of exile, even though that story's maybe different. Contrast that to the Samaritans. They weren't exiled, or the ones that stayed the people of the land. They did not have that exile experience. They could not share the story. So the identity, they were not part of that community. Their identity was kind of marginalized. Another thing that you brought about language. This is one of my favorite verses because I love Old Testament passages that explicitly refer to language. And half their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but spoke the language of various people. Ashdod is, you know, it's one of the Philistia states. It's probably referring to Aramaic, which is a lingua franca at the time, actually. But they couldn't use the word Aramaic because Cyrus used Aramaic. Like, it's a long story. But anyways, <laughs> second generation kids, they don't speak the same language as their first generation kid. Can I actually ask you, your kids were raised in Japan. How comfortable are they with English versus Japan? Japanese, I should say. We had a rule that uh, they were the Japanese schools. Okay. So we had a rule that in our house, you could only speak 
English, and then when we lived in America, we had a rule we would only speak Japanese in that. Okay. So we wanted to raise our kids uh, bilingual. Where are they more, more comfortable with? What language are they more comfortable with? I think my oldest, which he was in Japan for 18 years, I think he he was comfortable speaking in, in Japanese. Okay. But the two other kids now, I think they feel more comfortable speaking in English. Okay, so that is incredible, because even within a generation, you have difference in language. So my wife is one of four, she's the youngest, and she immigrated from Korea when she was 10. And all four siblings have different levels of English accent actually, because they all came at different ages. Half their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah. They spoke the language of various peoples. And what kind of conflict, like, and that was, think about Michelle. How would she navigate life there? But if she were to get married and have children, the children would assimilate in completely different ways as well. In language, you cannot hide that. So as I mentioned, back in my generation, they did not raise bilingual kids. My dad wanted us to be American. We did Cub Scouts. I played Little League. They wanted American kids. And so I, I hope I don't have an English accent. I don't think I do. Born in the States, went to public schools. I learned Korean as an adult. So my Korean is actually accented. You know, it's pretty good, but it's accented. And as soon as I say a word, people know I'm not a native Korean. In fact, beyond that, one time when I was in Korea, I was standing in line. And um, there's a, a guy who is Egyptian. He looks at this line of Koreans, and then he comes straight to me and asks me a question in English. Wow. And then I ask, like, oh, how did you know? And I said, I just knew. <laughs> like, I, <don't> know. <laughs> I just knew that you were not fully Korean. Okay. Um, my older kid, he was born in LA, and he moved to Oregon when I got my first job when he was five. He, we sent him to Koreatown. We had the same idea. Koreatown, we had a daycare that spoke in Korean. And so uh, up till four, he didn't speak English, even though he was born and raised in LA. We moved to Oregon. Within one month of kindergarten, he flipped his preferred language within one month from Korean to English. And I don't blame him. Like he wants, he wants to talk to friends. He's using English constantly. He want, you know, none of his playdate friends, except for one, spoke Korean. And so that makes complete sense to me. Yes, sir. Do the Korean people have a particular word to describe those who are not from the... Yes, yeah. Uh, Gyopo is the word for those that, Koreans that lived abroad. And you could do it um, like a Chambi Gyopo is American. You could do Chil Gyopo, which is a Japanese Korean. And so, yeah, there's, there's language for that. And how has that been perceived by those that spoke about it? Is it a slur or is it... It depends. So my grandfather, who's passed, uh, we're recording this, I guess I, I'll just say this. He doesn't say American person, he would say the word for bastard instead of person. And so that tells you everything that you need to know about my grandfather and his protection of his culture. Marriage rules, okay. I get it for Christians. This is part of the most difficult things of Ezra and Nehemiah. They broke up the mixed marriages. In this passage, in Nehemiah 13, also in Ezra, has been horribly abused because they sent out the foreign women and their children. And it's a very problematic passage, but you have to interpret this in light of repatriation. You have to understand how hard it is to maintain their identity 
as a people of God as you go back to this land, right? And so I'm not trying to normalize this as a hermeneutic for today. I think that's a terrible misuse of this passage. But I would invite you as 21st century pastoral leaders to think through what does it mean to try to, what are the extreme measures by which you need to maintain your identity? And so any second generation kid from any culture, Korean, Jewish, like uh, talk about what your parents want you to marry, you know? Uh, my, I married a Korean, my brother didn't. And I know my mom said that's cool. Again, this is recorded, so my mom probably won't be. Uh, but she treats my wife differently than my brother's wife. I, I just know that. Um, and you could do this across cultures. Um, there is just some instinct in cultural preservation that, uh, and, and Christianity overtakes this in Corinthians, right? In terms of marrying a believer and not being yoked to an unbeliever. Marriage needs to be very strictly defined. Also, you should realize that um, marriage, you know, falling in love and getting married, that's kind of a recent thing. Uh, for most of human history, you marry some form of a cousin, right? Because you want to protect the assets of the family with dowry and marriage gifts. And I know that's gross for you, but your cousin is just as grossed out as you are to understand in human history. I, my grandmother, grandfather, they, they met <coughs> each other on the day of marriage in Korea. They met each other. My grandmother was, I think, 15 at the time. And that's just the way it was arranged in human history. Parenthetically, um, for those of you that are not married, they actually think that marital satisfaction, there's still arranged marriages today, and they think marital satisfaction is equal to those that fall in love and get married because of that. And one reason is when you are in an arranged marriage, the expectation is much more realistic. And so for what it's worth, still today. Another part of identity building, they built a wall. You need to be super cool with this analogy today, in today's climate, you need to be super cool. Uh, this is the broad wall discovered in the 1970s in Jerusalem. Uh, it is enormous, so this was a wall that's estimated to be about nine meters tall. And one advantage of like movies is walls are actually <coughs> reasonably accurately portrayed. Like you want to protect the city. And once there is a breach in the city, then the city becomes vulnerable. And so you want to make them big and thick. And Israel had all sorts of ways to make them thick, even with a lack of resources. A big thing you'll find in Israel's something called a casemate wall, where you'll actually have an outer, but an inside would be empty, but you would fill storage to, to fortify it. Uh, all sorts of things were made to breach the wall and to protect it, so they made better battering rams. And so in response, uh, a lot of entries to walls would become like this. So you can't just get all this momentum up to a wall. Uh, in the seventh century, in the eighth century, late eighth century, uh, even today you see a siege ramp where, and you can actually walk on that Assyrian siege ramp today where they actually got workers to build a tower to go over the wall and they would often use prisoners from the other side so you wouldn't want to kill them. And um, so a wall, the identity of the wall, it keeps people out and it protects the people inside. And also think about the resources to build something like this nine meters tall surrounding the city. I did archeology span for one summer. Um, I remember like I'd never done manual labor in my life. I had like kind of these severe allergies as a kid, so I couldn't do garden work, which was awesome. And so here I am as a graduate student volunteering on this excavation, 
I remember giving a pickaxe, within 10 minutes I was covered in sweat and questioning my life choices. How am I gonna last this for eight hours a day? Uh, just imagine carrying one of those rocks, you know, one of those stones in the corner that it just takes so much energy to build a wall, to define the protection, to define the identity of the one inside. One more I will do is the lists. Ezra 2 and, Ezra and Nehemiah 7 have these long lists and they're identified. Now these were the people of the province who came from the captive exiles. So it's incorporating the story, right? These are the peoples that experience exile. We don't understand lists as well in American culture. I will say in Korean culture, again, if I go to a government office, I could see centuries, generations of, of descendants. And so when I was born, my dad sent the information to Korea. And so the names of people and when they got married and life events, I found out during my sabbatical that uh, my mom was pregnant with my brother when she came in 1967, which adds a whole new narrative to my like how both scary that would be, how frightening um, to immigrate with a, your first child, not knowing um, the language, not knowing if you'd ever come back. And I brought this picture too as an example of what, how are lists meaningful in our culture. And so you have this really boring chapter in Ezra 2 and Nehemiah 7, you think about some of the lists in Chronicles, well, for the people looking for a name, that's actually really meaningful for the people to identify them as part of this story, part of this narrative. I want to say a couple more things about Ezra and Nehemiah and um, give some time for some questions that you might have. We talk about identity. That's a very exclusivist identity. This is us and those that don't have the story and language, those that don't have this endogamous marriage, those that are on the, the list, we are, they are not part of the community. And I want you to think as you preach from Ezra and Nehemiah, the repatriation frames everything. It is a totalizing effect. It influences everything that you see. With that, there are two really notable exceptions to that exclusion. I think they're really important. Ezra 6.21, they just celebrate Passover. And Passover is a very strict, high holiday in Jewish tradition, right? According to the Pentateuch. But there's this really weird verse. Those separated themselves from the pollutions of the nations of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. They were also invited to Passover even though they might be from the non-Judean nation. So pagans. And so there's a great mystery for that. And what I'm trying to think is there's such a binary insider-outsider, but here in this verse is an exception to the binary, that those that will truly worship the Lord, even if you're from a foreign nation, can come celebrate the Passover with the people. And that adds a little tension to that strict idea of identity, as I think it should. Uh, and in Nehemiah 8.2, they have actually finished building the temple, they finished um, building the walls, they have another census, and, and then they start with Nehemiah 8, and they're about to read from the Torah, and those that participate, both men and women, and all who could hear with understanding. And so in Hebrew, when you say men, it actually means men and women. And in, in Hebrew language, it's gendered. So if you have 100 women and one male, you use the form of plural male. It's just the way that the grammar works. And so when it says both men and women, it's actually redundant. It's emphasizing the women have a place in this hearing of Torah. And not only the men and women, 
but everyone that has hears to understand. So children can participate in this as well. And so I think these two verses are there to kind of mollify the danger of this extreme exclusivist policy. Yeah, we're a kingdom. We need to define ourselves. But the kingdom is not strictly drawn by blood in every iota of this text. It's drawn by those who have, can understand, who can hear, and those who truly worship the Lord. There is the idea that the book of Ruth and the book of Jonah are theirs to provide balance for the book of Ezra and Nehemiah as well. So you think about the book of Ruth and Moabite widow, you think about the book of Jonah, go to Nineveh and preach and they repent. So you have one Paris place where they are repatriated and they need to sharply form their identity to strict means. And you have Ruth and Jonah that broaden out that the word of God, the kingdom of God is not exclusive to only Judeans of ethnic origin, but to those who worship. I have about five questions, uh, five minutes that I want to answer any questions or comments. I have some discussion on what you heard and anything I can clarify. So I'll put it up to you. I think it's interesting, these verses right here, because I was thinking as I was coming in this morning, it seems like churches all over this nation has a denominational way of thinking and that churches are becoming regulatory institutions for the determination of fellowship. <laughs> and where I go in my little town, we, when we come to worship, that's, that's why we come, and we just come and we worship, and we don't discuss the regulations for if we fellowship this person or not. We aren't interested in that, we're interested in just worshiping. Okay. And, uh, <clears throat> and it's interesting because it seems like it goes all the way back. <laughs> it goes all the way back. And, uh, you know, I've heard it said that when Israel was leaving Egypt, God took Israel out of Egypt, and then it took them another 40 years to get Egypt out of Israel. And, uh, but, and we also know that God is more concerned about the state of the heart than probably anything else. <laughs> and so, and of course, Keeping everything pure and strict like this was necessary for the Messiah to be born. Mm -hmm. And uh, so here we are today, and we kind of messed up the bond of unity <laughs> with all the denominations that exist. And I, I just long for the day when everything could be set aside and we could just come together to just worship. Yeah, thank you. Well said. I imagine people, like this was a text, and people looking for their name in Nehemiah 7, the name of their ancestors, and maybe not finding it. And then they come at like all who could hear with understanding. And like, you know what, I'm still, I still have the right to hear Torah and to obey Torah, even though maybe my name, my ancestors were on Nehemiah 7. So this is the delimiter. Yes? I was just sharing uh, an argument that I read um, some fiction about Ezra and Nehemiah and it was really enlightening um, of course it's not scripture but they kind of took scripture and then kind of what you did with the uh, 
a video, and you can probably comment on this, but I, I was under the understanding that not everybody who could go back actually went back, mm -hmm. and some chose to not go mm -hmm. back. And so, in some of these books that I just like because it's just fiction, but the families that were torn apart, where you had children, and some of the um, the children that were younger that grew up in that foreign land, that's all they know. They might be prosperous, they might be wealthy, they marry, they have family. And so uh, they decided not to go back. Mm -hmm. And so how heartbroken, you know, the mom or the dad that went back was, and just that whole family splitting, and some kids did went, some didn't, and how that plays into this whole story mm -hmm. as well. Yeah, you, you're right. There are several families that stayed in Babylon. And we, there's a city in Babylon called Al-Yehuda. Al means city, Yehuda, Judeans. And so they, they had enclaves of deported populations. We know some of them got very wealthy, too. Um, and so what does it take to want to go back, to choose to? What, are you, what type of group wants to go back? That's a great question. That takes place mm -hmm. You're not as faithful to God right. because you chose not to go back. We're more faithful mm -hmm. to God because we chose, and that whole thing that comes up as well. Absolutely, very good. Yeah. Um, just going back to the list, uh, I'm a preacher. Like I said, I've been, I've tried to preach from this. Uh, how would you preach from the list to our 21st century yeah. audience? Yeah, I would actually think about you know the the sociology of a list. I think you need to explain why this is so important. That's why I've used that image when I, when I teach on Ezra and Nehemiah, because that captures how important it is to see that. And even viscerally, for some that have done that at that very memorial, even though it's just a bunch of names out of context, it is so important. And each family connected the, has a connection to that name, or each name has a connection to a family and descendants, was, oh, I'm a part of this, this story as well. So I think a lot of preaching is getting back to a mindset where they can see something very different and something fresh in the text. And that troubles me about Ezra Nehemiah because, hey, I love the Gospels. I love Romans. There's like a whole other testament that's canonized within the Christian church. And spending time, I think, having my kid ask me that question helped open up. There's so much about identity uh, that is important for Christian churches to understand. And it is not being preached. I need to close off to give you a break, but I'll give you the epilogue to that story. Back to my six-year-old, who's now 11, and uh, back in 2014, in our apartment, when he's covered in sweat, just played soccer, and he asked me a question, am I Korean, am I American? And when, I, when, when my kids, I have two boys, uh, when they ask me serious questions, I have routine, I look them in the eye, I get down to their level, look them in the eye, and I say the same thing every time. I say, I don't know, ask your mom. And so that's, that's what I did. <laughs> And so he asked his mom, and mom and my Korean, what, what did she say? She, she got all here parental. She like, well, what do you think? What do you think? And my son said, I think I'm Korean and American. And she said, you are right. Tomorrow, I'm going to talk. One part of repatriation is identity. Another part is power. What is the power or the lack of power that you wield? when you return to a, land, to a land, and how do you adapt to that new power situation? And so, uh, if interested, tomorrow, and thanks for, for coming, appreciate that, and I'll hang around here if you wanna chat a little bit later afterwards. Thank you. Thank you.